Mark chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to be focusing on verses 7 through 12. But to set up where this passage is in the book of Mark, I'd like to read beginning at verse 1 of chapter 3. And he entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, in order that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Rise and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. And Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. And a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the multitude, in order that they might not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed about him in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits beheld him, they would fall down before him and cry out, saying, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to make him known. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have asked over these past few weeks that you would help us in our desire to see Jesus, that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we believe what we just sang, that the voice of Jehovah still goes out and is still powerful and is still even to break the cedars of Lebanon, we ask that you would speak that you would cause us to hear your voice and understand these things, to see our Lord and to see what you were doing and are still doing in the world today. We ask, Father, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, that we might believe and receive. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. On 11 occasions in the book of Mark, we see Jesus withdrawing. Sometimes we see that it's obviously because he's setting aside time to pray. Sometimes we understand that he's seeking relief from the crowds, just trying to get away perhaps by himself or with the disciples to consult with them privately, to have a time of, of teaching and sometimes, um, and we use the phrase, uh, discretion is the better part of valor. He is being, I think, prudent in moving away. And here we see Jesus withdrawing, but perhaps it's a peculiar place to see him withdrawing because there's just been a confrontation, perhaps silent one, but what we see in verse 6 is, after Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, he had the 
understanding that the Pharisees stomped out. They stomped out of the synagogue. Luke tells us they were filled with rage, or the word literally translate madness. One of the commentators said, we see Jesus' sadness and the Pharisees' madness. That's what's going on here. That's what the immediate passage tells us, that they had stomped out and immediately began taking counsel, offering perhaps or taking counsel, but what we understand is that the deed was already planned, how, what, what they were going to do, not whether they would kill him, but how they would kill him. That's the meaning of destroy him. Not just his personality, not just defame his character, but actually do away with his life. And it illustrates very well, as uh, a few after last week's service pointed out to me, that it reflects so well. Jesus asking them the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to save life or to kill? And immediately the Pharisees go out and they're, de they're actually answering that question for themselves. To them, to save a life, to heal this man, was a moral criminal act. But to go out and plot murder on the Sabbath day was completely lawful. Some take Mark to task for introducing this here. Uh, that we see this early in his gospel, the desire of people to kill him. They call this an anachronism. And I know Chuck has used that in some of his teachings. I had to look it up about three times to understand what it is. An anachronism is where something occurs that shouldn't exist perhaps for that time period or in that context. And there are those people who have either too much time on their hands or they have very astute eyesight that they can see this in, in movies. Um, for example, Back to the Future, when Marty McFly plays the guitar at the end of the movie, that Gibson guitar was not even produced until three years after he was supposed to have been playing it are those who are fans of the movie, the Disney movie, Brave. They wear plaid and they eat with metal forks and they play bagpipes, but none of those were invented for hundreds of years after the story was supposed to have taken place. Those are anachronism, things that don't occur in the, the right time period. And here they're saying, Mark's got it wrong. He's got this opposition to, to Jesus escalating to a point of where they're plotting murder way before. In fact, we're only in Galilee. We're not even in Jerusalem. But if we're to take the narrative as fact and not as fiction, if we are to believe that Mark is representing to us what happened and getting these events from his relationship with Peter, we know that the tensions are indeed rising even in Galilee to this point. When the Pharisees saw these miracles happening, the healing of the man with the withered hand or the paralytic or these other things that Jesus has done, we, it would have seemed that they would look at that as this is a good thing. This is the good thing that's happening. We would expect, perhaps, for it to cause praise and wonder and awe. 
that Jesus could have had mercy, that he had compassion on these people. Maybe even they would have a growing love for him, but no, it didn't even cause them to finally get it that he has some type of authority from above. But what was their motive here? What was their driving force? Some people believe that it was simply religious. Our religion does not see this coming, does not understand this. Perhaps it was personal. Perhaps looking at him and his fame and the following, perhaps it was political. And we see that they've joined with this political group called the Herodians, these strange allies that, that were hated by the Jews and yet the Pharisees were joining forces. And we see that it was clearly an organized and real opposition to Jesus Christ. We meet the Herodians later on in Mark chapter 8. And Jesus says of, the, of them to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and beware of the leaven of Herod. He's referring to these Herodians, these who were kind of trying to curry favor with Herod Antipas and not really respecting Rome because Rome at this time respected Herod's brother rather than him, but yet they wanted to have some kind of political pull and the Pharisees said, yeah, maybe we can use them. In Mark chapter 12, we see that some from the Pharisees were sent along with the Herodians in order to entrap him in some kind of statement that they could use to accuse him. So these strange bedfellows have, have joined forces. But what is Jesus' response to the madness? And Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. And we've already seen that that's one of the favorite places that Jesus goes. That he found Peter and Andrew and James and John there. That apparently it was a place that he frequented. This Sea of Galilee. This place where um, he could walk along the shore and meet these people. But why? Why? Was it because he wanted to check these Pharisees' fury at this point, that he wanted to just say, you know, that's, that's enough. Matthew chapter 12, Matthew writes that Jesus didn't hear these things that they were doing, but he perceived it. He, he understood what they were doing. So he had a knowledge that, you know, this thing is going on behind his back. Some people believe that he just wanted to stay under the radar with the Romans, and I know that's an anachronism. Okay, but that he just wa he didn't want to attract the Roman government's attention to his ministry. He wanted to be left alone. Some say it was he was actually fearful for his own life, or that he wanted some kind of protection or escaping danger, or just he didn't want the controversy. Sometimes Jesus has withdrawn for things. Like I said, prayer, relief from the crowds to consult with his disciples. But here, I think we see that Jesus, as he has done at least once before in Mark, he's staying true to his ministry, to, to what the need is. 
And as we look at Mark, as we look at this passage, we, we see groups. We see, as one commentator called it, these, the official hatred that we've just discussed. We're about to meet this enthusiastic crowd of people following him. And we're about to be introduced again to the unclean spirits, these demons that he is exercising from people. But we can't ignore the fact that he, Mark tells us, and he withdrew to the sea with his disciples. There, there's... There's a moment in history that Mark is about to reveal to us, and you'll have to come back this evening to see the revealing. But this moment in history where the disciples are coming to the fore, where the disciples are being recognized by Jesus, and he's drawing the twelve to him to teach them and to send them out to preach. And, and these things, these, this opposition, this popularism, the, the unclean spirits, all of these things coming together at a critical moment, I think. And, and we know that, you know, Mark has, at least I believe, Mark has put these things together for us to understand this moment in time is coming. There's a reason why he puts these things together in the order that he does. That Jesus as again, we've already seen him where the disciples were rushing after him. There are people waiting to be healed. And Jesus says, let's go to another city because that is not my purpose now. And here, I think he's just saying to us, that was not his purpose now to do the confrontation or to um, try to do anything more with these Pharisees or these Herodians. But he has a purpose. He's moving on with his disciples to a very great moment in history. And the question that I see here, that I think that these official haters have missed, but I can't help but wondering whether these popular enthusiasts have missed as well. And only the unclean spirits are the ones that even dare to say it out loud. And the reason they dare is because they can't help but speak. Is who is this man? Who is this man, Jesus? We've seen him declare himself as the supreme will. We've heard him say that he has power on earth to forgive sin. That, that he is the friend of sinners. That he is the bridegroom that was to come. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. But who's getting the message? Who's hearing this report? And who is believing it? And there seems to be, and even in Mark, we're not going to have Jesus address that question specifically to his disciples until Mark chapter 8. And the question is brought up, I think, in this section. Who is this man and why does he not want the unclean spirits, to do the declaration, you are the Son of God. Two multitudes, I think, are, are coming to see Jesus here. One of the commentators says, no, nah, they're just verbs. One's, you know, they're following and they're coming. But I see two groups of, of people coming to Jesus in verse 7 and 8. A great multitude. And there's a difference in the Greek. One is a great multitude, and there's another multitude that's not quite so great. And Mark makes that distinction. 
One is following them. They're, they're the people in Galilee who've already heard about him, and they're coming to him. A great multitude followed him. But then he says, yeah, but the news, the fame is spreading. And he talks about these areas of Palestine, uh, from Judea. And then he says, from Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and Tyre and Side, where are all these places? Well, they're all pretty much to the south and east of Galilee. And if you picture the map, you see Galilee next to the Sea of Galilee to the west. And below that, down kind of in the south, you would see Judea. And then you see Idumea. And Idumea, as I understand in my research, was what was called in the Old Testament Edom. It was the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And it was conquered in 129 BC, or at least in a conquering, what they meant was they took it over and they forced most of these people to become proselytes, to become Jewish, to become circumcised and to follow the law. Well, that would be the deep south. As if you read in the scripture, it's talking about, you know, south toward the Negev. Well, that would be about where they were, the deep south. And then as you come north, there would be Judea, Galilee's up in the north, next to the Sea of Galilee, Tyre and Sidon off to the northwest. And off to the east, beyond the Jordan, he says, would be the area that we would know as Perea. And so they were coming to him, these large crowds coming to see Jesus. And, and Mark uses the word crowds. Uh, New American Standard translates it as multitudes. But there's a difference, I think. You know, there's, yeah, there's a lot of people. But the idea of the crowd in the Greek has this not only large numbers, but there's confusion. And there's chaos. And there's pressure going on here. That's the idea of the crowds coming to Jesus. That's the tension that Mark builds into his, his gospel here. And we don't know all of why they're coming. Some believe that it is because of the Pharisees and the Herodians that they're hearing about this going on and they're coming to see who is this man. Some believe it's in spite of that. Well, I don't know what they're arguing about, but this man is a healer and he's doing great things. And what's conspicuous to me about this group of people, these peoples, these regions who have people coming to him is that between Judea and Galilee is a little fairly sizable area, I guess, called Samaria that's conspicuous by its absence. And I don't know how to deal with that. I don't know whether he just didn't mention them or they didn't come or it was because they were despised by the Jews. But the Samarians are not listed here and they're right in the middle of that area out where people would have come from. But what are they doing? Well, they're pressing upon him, the, the language is. They're, they're actually knocking against him as they come. And I've never been a celebrity, but you've seen it on TV where the celebrity is suddenly appears and the crowd, the groupies or whatever, they're hanging on and they're, they're rude. They, they're banging into him or her as they're trying, you know, supposedly they want to go get an autograph, a photo or whatever, and they're banging into them. And that's what's happening here. And Jesus so shows a practical side, does he not? 
he asked them, bring a little boat. Uh, it's a little weary, not a ship, but a little boat, bring it and have it ready. We don't know if he got in it at this point. We know that there are times when he got in a boat and he rowed out a little ways and he preached from there. But he's saying, make one ready, have it sitting, standing by. And it's interesting, as we go along in the Gospels, you know, there are times when we, we say, and he got into the boat. Well, here's the boat. <laughs> That's where he got the boat. And it's nice because he had fishermen as friends, so they know how to get a boat. And he, but there's a practical reason for that, because they were crowding in on him. The question is, why? Why are they coming? It says that, he healed many, and with the result that those who had afflictions pressed about him. They had afflictions. It's, the word is plagues. And it meant in this time strokes or some kind of scourge, some disease. But they were afflicted by these things. And, and what we understand, the idea here is in order to touch him, they're, they're following what we read in, in Luke chapter 6, apparently a, a popular idea about Jesus even now, and then we see later on with the woman with the flow of blood. Luke chapter 6 tells us all were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing all of them. Just by touching him or the hem of his garment, there were many that were healed. And they had knew about this somehow, and they were coming to him and crowding in upon him. Cure by contact. That seems to be their motive. Their, even if it was rude contact. I bumped into him and I was cured. But it seemed to be all they wanted. They were not hostile. But so eager for this healing that, that Jesus would address or serve their particular case. But I can't help but going back up to verse 8 and the motive. It says, a great multitude or a great crowd heard all that he was doing and came to him. His fame was spreading. He was doing these great things. He was healing many. He was Casting out demons. But did Jesus' words of grace, of redemption, of repentance have any impact upon them? Was there anything beyond idle curiosity? I'm sure there were many who were not sick but just wanted to see, who is this man? What is he doing? Is there anything beyond, I, I just like to be healed. Do they care for him are just the miracles and the wonders that he wrought. And then we meet the unclean spirits. Whenever the unclean spirits beheld him, they would fall down before him and cry out, saying, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not, I repeat, not to make him known. The unclean spirits kept falling down before him, the unclean spirits in the bodies of people making them fall down before him. He would see the people, but it would be the unclean spirits that were falling before him. And they kept crying out. That's the language of Mark. They kept falling before him. They kept crying out. And Jesus kept rebuking them and charging them. It's this dynamic that's going on here. 
And what are these unclean spirits? Well, they're demons. One writer writes, every trace of moral purity is gone. Its very nature is utter foulness. That's the idea of the unclean spirits. There is no moral purity. There's no snippet of it at all. And they did. Every time we see in the scriptures, they confront Jesus. But they cry out to him. We've seen it in Mark 1. We see it again in Matthew chapter 8. What do we have to do with you, son of God? Have you come here to torment us? They were spiritually clairvoyant. They were not asking that question, who is this man? They knew the answer that the Pharisees missed, the Herodians missed, the haters missed, the disciples so far have missed, the enthusiastic populists have missed. They knew who he was. They recognized him as the one who was able to torment them and destroy them. They recognized that here is a supernatural foe with a supernatural origin, with a supernatural power and authority to destroy us. But what was their motive? Why would they do this knowing that Jesus was their tormentor and destroyer? What drives them? One of the commentators, Alexander McLaren, answers this way. Terror and malice drove them into his presence and wrung from them acknowledgement of his supremacy. See, there's no purity. Their terror, their modus operandi, this is what they are to spread terror and malice and wickedness and it drove them to him and it caused them to acknowledge out loud his supremacy, his authority, his power. You, son of God. McLaren goes on to say, what intenser pain can any hell have than the clear recognition of Christ's character and power coupled with fiery, obstinate, and utterly vain rebellion against him. Do you see that clash? They come to him with this rebellion, this terror, this malice, this obstinacy fiercely against who he is. And when they meet him face to face, it's the most intense pain of hell that can exist. And Jesus kept charging them and rebuking them because his job was to drive them out of the control of men and women. Casting out demons was one of the things that Jesus knew would doom Satan's kingdom. In fact, again, he's, Mark's building this up. We're going to see it in chapter 3, verse 26. If Satan is divided against himself, he is finished. Christ is doing the work that he came to do. And I, and I don't know that I understand the Jewish concept of the Messiah. There, there are parts of it that I think that have come to understand that the Jews were looking for a warrior Christ. 
Someone who would come in with his army and set up a kingdom and just wipe out all of his enemies. He would be a national idealist. He would be a, a zealot warrior for God. And they didn't see that happening. They saw the man, Jesus of Nazareth, walking about the Sea of Galilee, picking men to be his followers and doing good. And yet was he not fighting God's enemies? Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah writes of him, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. He comes preaching the kingdom. He comes, yes, with authority and power. He is fighting God's enemies, but he is coming not in the way that they expected. But now we, we, I think we still have to ask why. Why this injunction of secrecy? Why would he forbid the disclosure of who he is? Does he not want us to know who he is? Mark, is Mark failing in his gospel? What is the title of Mark's gospel in 1.1? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Does he not want us to know who he is? There's a man, I, I can't pronounce his last name. It's spelled W-R-E-D-E, Vrida, I guess is how you would say it. He wrote a whole book, and the premise of it is that Mark's gospel is just tells us what, what happened, and Jesus' whole point is he doesn't want a single person on earth to know that he is a Messiah until he rises from the dead, if he even did. I can't follow that. I can't follow those who say and use the phrase because his time had not yet come. Well, we know his time had not yet come and Jesus is aware that his time has not come. I, I, I think that's somewhat of a cop-out. I'm not sure I have the answer. I may be wrong. But what I see here is that these unclean spirits were the only ones, not the Pharisees, the official Jews, not even these folks that we meet, these enthusiasts who follow him day after day, even the disciples yet. I believe that he did not wish these vile, morally impure beings to make him known. Because he knew Satan's deception. I think that's what the rest of Mark chapter 3 is about. The second half is the devil's trick. Making men believe that there is some secret understanding between Jesus and the devil. Making men under, try to understand that somehow they work together. The, the, the devil's tyranny is what Jesus came to deliver us from, was it not? And the devil cannot endure his authority and his power. Christ would not have his people be known by the devil's work, but by his own word, by his own works, and by the worship that he received. And I believe that's why he told them time and time again, do not make me known. You will not be the ones who glorify me.
We've had occasion several weeks to refer to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53. We read from that servant song last week, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And in that prophecy of Isaiah, I had to kind of backtrack because I was so focused on the things that I know, that man of sorrows, the, the being crushed by God for our iniquity and to pay for our transgressions, the idea of the, the blood that he shed and the cross that he endured. But I had to go back to chapter or verse 1 of chapter 53 where Isaiah, and I think it's the voice of the people, it's the voice of the nation of Israel, the remnant of Israel, who came back after the exile. Israel as a nation laments, as we've heard some this morning in our hearing. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's the nation of Israel lamenting their shame, We've put no faith in this man. We've, we, we have not believed God that this was his servant, that this was the servant of Yahweh. Listen to a couple of the verses. He said, he had no stately form of majesty that we should even look at him. He was like one who is despised. And so we were like men. We, we just hid our faces from him. He was despised and, and we esteemed him not. We knew the story of the servant of Jehovah. We've read Isaiah 42. We've preached. That's what the report is. We have preached the servant of Jehovah. And yet, to our shame, we've missed him. We've missed the work that he would do. We missed his sacrifice. We missed the glorious fulfilling of that whole story. Who has believed the message that we preach, so common to us and yet rejected by us? And we know from the writings of Paul, echoing the writings of John in his gospel, that Isaiah got it right. The people got it right. And I believe that this prophecy will not be fulfilled until that glorious day or just before that glorious day, when the Jews recognized who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Listen to the words of John. But though he had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him that the word of the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. These official haters, these, these popular enthusiasts, these people following Jesus, claiming to be his disciples. He performed many works before them, but they were not believing in him. But they were still culpable. We know what the scripture says about them. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are hard. In Romans 10, in the middle of that passage where Paul describes his countrymen, the Jews, he says, go back. Go back to Isaiah 52, which is very close to Isaiah 53, and you'll read these words. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And then we get to verse, or chapter 53, they did not heed the tidings. 
Isaiah says of them, Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He's not speaking of Jesus as the arm of the Lord. He is speaking of who has been changed by this preaching. Who has, by the spirit of revelation given to him, understood the report, understood the preaching. According to his own counsel, the Lord says, Jehovah was pleased to crush him and put him to grief. But by the Lord's own counsel, he used that to bring salvation. The arm of the Lord brings salvation. It says in Isaiah 53, he bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. And the nation of Israel one day will recognize, oh, but we can't come to the servant. Of Jehovah. We cannot obtain this coming to him without the extraordinary revelation of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word. What does John say earlier in his gospel? Not by blood, not by flesh. It's not by your birth. It's not by your title. It's not by the will of man. It's not by your might. It's not by your reason. These official haters, these popular enthusiasts, then and now, because they still exist, do we not have official haters of Jesus Christ? Do we not have people who are popular enthusiasts? If I can get all these things, and if I can realize all these things, and I'll believe in him, then and now, Isaiah says of them, who has believed our preaching? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The unclean spirits declared it correctly. But Jesus would not have their glory and their honor. We read it in Isaiah 42 this morning. My glory I will give to no other. One writer wrote of Mark's gospel, the theology of the gospel is implicit rather than explicit, popular and untechnical rather than systematic or speculative. But he says, nevertheless, it is the proclamation of the story of one who was not merely the man Jesus, but who also was the supernatural Christ. We all, we all have to answer this question. We all have to deal with this. Who is this man? Who do you say he is? To use Jesus' own words later in the gospel. Have you missed him? There were many who did. Do not be among those who did. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we ask that you would help us to understand these things. Help us to see what was set apart by the Holy Spirit for our, our understanding, for our, our learning, but also for our faith that we might believe. And that by believing we might glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would do these things for your people and the building up of your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.